welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder. Hey, Laura. Hey, Sarah. This really continues our series on theft, art theft, book theft. We're looking at thefts happening at all of the Ivies. And as you said, Sarah, we are focusing in the season of giving, we are focusing on taking. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And today we're really focusing on something called biblioclepsy. Now, biblioclepsy, for you Latin scholars out there, is stealing books. And so why people focus in on books rather than art, rather than money, people get obsessed. So this is a real nerdy type of dysfunction. (laughs) (laughs) So so tell us a story about this, Sarah. This is one of these like incidental stories that I came across in reading about and researching about it. And so this story is about a Spanish monk and his name was Don Vicente. And he lived in Spain, and this was 1836. And he was a book collector, an avid book collector of rare books. And he became obsessed with this one book about, it's called the Edicts and Ordinances for Valencia. For whatever reason, Don Vicente became obsessed with this one old book that he wanted. However, he got outbid at an auction and lost the book to another book collector in the same town. So Don Vicente went and he stole the book and he killed the other guy and he burned down his place. He basically became a serial killer. He would steal books from people and then kill them. Finally, the law caught up with Don Vicente. Don Vicente was asked, look, there were other valuables laying around, not just these books. Why didn't you steal the other things? And he said, well, I'm not a thief. When he was asked, like, how could you kill these people? It was sort of like, the books are the important. He was so obsessed with these books that the human life that he sacrificed for these books didn't matter at all to him. Again, this is an extreme form of biblioclepsy. And one of the strangest motives for murder I've yet to hear. It is. I can't believe this isn't a movie, actually. I think it would make a fantastic movie, but... The serial killing, book stealing, Spanish monk from 1836. Ah, well, maybe it will be one. (laughs) But on the subject of books. So it's so funny to me, Laura, that we're back in Widener Library. And Widener is just this colossal presence in Harvard Yard. It looks like a huge white mausoleum is how you described it. And I think you're absolutely right. And in fact, Widener's genesis was a direct result of the sinking of the Titanic. So the Titanic set out 
on her ill-fated maiden voyage from England on April 10, 1912. What was considered an unsinkable ship, as it turns out, famously sank. And Sarah, some very famous families like the Astors, the Guggenheims, the Strausses, who founded Macy's, and the Wideners were in first class. In fact, George and Eleanor Widener were with their son Harry in an enormous stateroom suite. The Wideners had just completed a European tour collecting books, celebrating Harry's graduation from Harvard. The Titanic was like a floating palace. George Widener and his son, Harry Elkins Widener, perished in this tragedy. Only Eleanor Widener survived. As we talk about Sarah in Season 1, Episode 14, So definitely check that out if you want a little deeper dive into the Widener family. A tribute to her son, Eleanor, donated his book collection to Harvard. And what happened, Sarah? So this was a huge collection of books. Eleanor Widener approached Harvard and said, I've got millions of books. You can have them. This was my son's wishes. And Harvard said, well, we don't have anywhere to put them. Yeah. <laughs> they, they had this tiny little library. And Eleanor Widener, because the Wideners were definitely a rather large means, said, well, I'll build you a library. So since its inception in 1915, the Widener has been home to rumors, speculation, and according to some, ghosts. Okay, Sarah, let's just discuss the Widener for a minute, because it's a place both of us have a lot of familiarity with. We walked by there probably every day in high school and my mother worked there you studied there in college yeah i think my experience at the widener was slightly more vanilla than yours laura <laughs> but your wonderful mother kathy worked there as she well. did she worked there probably for 20 years the interesting part about the widener is eleanor made it very clear that not a brick would be altered in this structure so nothing can be changed at the Widener Library on the exterior. And even in the interior, everything has to go through all kinds of boards. And it wasn't until I think the late 90s that air conditioning was added. Your mom tells us basically it was so hot, people were like passing out in the library. Well, I think that was the joke that once somebody passed out, then they would know to send the staff home. (laughs) that it was hot enough to send the staff home. It's like canary in the coal mine kind of thing. Right, and that was all due to the way the library and the trust was set up to maintain the library. In the Widener, there is the Harry Elkins Widener reading room, and this is basically a real tribute to Harry Widener. A shrine. It's a shrine. It's got his portrait, and in that reading room, there is a copy of the Gutenberg Bible. The Widener contains 57 miles of books. It's bloody enormous. Harvard has the largest private collection of books, and one of the most valuable books in the collection is the Gutenberg Bible. So, Laura, why is the Gutenberg so valuable? Well, the Gutenberg is so valuable because it is the first printed book, and it was because Gutenberg invented the printing press, and the first book printed was the Gutenberg Bible. And that's what makes it so valuable. Now, it's not the rarest book, but since it is the original book that was printed, there are probably 48 or 49 still in existence. It's true. Wait, can I Harvard this a little bit, though? Sure. Okay, so in 1450, Johannes Gutenberg introduced the first movable type printing press to Europe. 
meaning that books in the Dark Ages, and we're really talking about the Bible, which was being printed at this part, could be mass-produced rather than individually printed or handwritten and therefore less open to interpretation, which will play Absolutely. In, so the, there was you know. a uniformity of message. Basically, this ended the Dark Ages and opened up the Renaissance and free thinking, and the Bible was just the beginning. In a matter of decades, the printing press would spread across Europe, books would be printed, libraries would open, information and thought, it would be open to the masses. Prior to that, the written word was in reading was really just open to the elite and to the religious. When things were more open to interpretation, you had promulgation like of something like the indulgences. And explain to people, you're, you're a good Catholic, what are the indulgences? Right, which is actually something that Gutenberg printed with the printing press. Indulgences were something that the Catholic Church did, which is you could buy your way into heaven or you could buy a deceased loved one's way into heaven. So if you sinned, you could go to the church and pay money to absolve yourself of that sin. Or if you had a loved one who had been a terrible sinner and they died, you could go to the church and pay so that they weren't in hell. And I think that the first, the Catholic Church was really psyched. Okay, there's this printed word. It was all printed in Latin. And then not too far after that, the Protestant Reformation happens with Martin Luther, and that's right. 1517. Right. So, they didn't you know, know that one of the first bestsellers would be Martin Luther, and the indulgences and all of these other things would give rise to a Reformation. I think Martin Luther would turn in his grave if he knew that we were referring to him as a best-selling right. author. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, basically, the printing press just opened up the world to all kinds of thoughts and ideas. Booksellers, printers now became these places where books were, were being printed became centers for ideas and thoughts. Like think of maybe bookstores today as places where people would gather to talk about new ideas. And so why the hell are we talking about the Gutenberg Bible? Well, there is one of the original copies of the extant 48, arguably 47, 48, or 49 copies that are still out there is in the reading room at Harvard. Yes, and this was one of Harry Elkins Widener's pride possessions. Exactly, exactly. And so, it's displayed at the Widener. You can go to the Widener and view it. And it's under a glass case. By the way, the Gutenberg Bible is absolutely beautiful. It's all printed in Latin. There's pictures of animals and leaves. and The illustrations were actually done after the printing. So these illustrations were beautiful and painstakingly done afterwards. This is remarkable craftsmanship. And you're really talking about the first printed work in the Western world. And it is really like the Mona Lisa of books. Absolutely. Is, and we'll put pictures on all our socials of what the Bible looks like. You know, one little thing before we go into that, what I didn't know is that the Chinese had invented the movable printer in the year 1040. So this is a good 400 years before the Europeans had it, which is amazing. So if you were to put a dollar value on the Gutenberg, it would be in the range of about $100 million. Yes. It is stunning, and it is essentially priceless, though, because of its obvious cultural importance. And really, Widener was kind of looked at like a fortress, like nobody could get in or out of this place. 
But the Gutenberg Bible was almost stolen on a sweltering night of August 19, 1969. So, dressed all in black, a man named Vito Aris snuck into the Widener with a backpack. This is one of the most unassuming, interesting criminals we've yet to see. Well, I don't know about unassuming. I'm, I have my theories about Aris, and we'll, we'll talk about him a little bit in part two. But again, this is a hot night in August. The staff of the Widener Library closed up as usual. The crush of fall students weren't there yet, so I think the Widener was fairly quiet. It was August. It was hot and muggy. It's really the dog days in Boston during that month. So here's the geography of the crime. So Vito Aris gained entrance to the library because it was open to the public, and he waited in an upstairs bathroom until everything had shut down around 10 o'clock, and then he got to work. We'll go into Aris's background a little bit, but he was all of a sudden alone with 8 million books, some of which were very valuable. Aris had set his sights on one book in particular, the Gutenberg. So the Gutenberg, like we had said, had been lying in repose in a glass case in the Harry Elkins Widener reading room since 1946. What Aris did is he gained entrance to a bathroom on the upper floor and he waited till everything closed down. Then he climbed, he opened the bathroom window, he climbed down to the Widener reading room and he broke the window to the window of the reading room. And I can't believe no alarms went off. Then he smashed the glass case and took the two volumes of the Gutenberg. He then attempted to exit the window, which led to an interior courtyard of the Widener. But didn't quite work out for him, Laura. <laughs> because he misjudged one thing, Sarah. What was that? Well, a couple of things. He misjudged the length of the rope that it would take to get down to the bottom. It was over a 40-foot drop. He had only accounted for the rope to go from the upstairs bathroom to the reading room. He also didn't take into account how heavy these volumes were. So he's sitting there suspended with these heavy volumes. It's Finally, quite an image. Yeah, it is quite an image. Finally, I think he just gave up, cut the rope, and goes crashing to the ground. And gets so, knocked out unconscious. He gets knocked out unconscious. And he's discovered the next day by a janitor? Yeah, he was. He was found alive but unconscious the next morning. The two volumes had apparently broken his fall. They actually were not horribly damaged, just the binding, which I guess could be fixed. But so Aris was brought to Cambridge Hospital with a skull fracture and leg injuries and placed under arrest. Like I said, the Bible suffered some damage to its binding, but it was otherwise reparable. And Aris was charged with breaking and entering. But who was this guy, Vito Aris? And why did he do it? It's not like you can fence the Gutenberg Bible. What is an, an 18, 19-year-old kid from the tough streets of Dorchester? How does he get interested in the Gutenberg Bible? This is fascinating to me. Of all the things to steal, we'll talk about Aris a bit more in the second part because he kind of is a fascinating character and he becomes like a performance slash porn star later and we'll, <laughs> we'll go into his career. I was going to say what Aris will become is something you would never ever imagine. This is a colorful character. To come from the streets of Dorchester and to attempt to steal the Gutenberg Bible in 69 and then to 
go on to the career he went on to is just fascinating. It's just, it's bizarre. It is, it's beyond bizarre <laughs> and something we are gonna explore in depth in part two. Murder, murder, murder.